Sorry for the interruption. Coming up is a podcast brought to you by the dedicated and diverse volunteers at 3CR. Our podcasts keep community strong, and for the month of June, we're asking listeners to donate to the station to help keep us going. We rely on the generous donations of the community to survive. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and show your support for community-owned and community-run media. Happy listening. G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, the only national program focusing on union news, worker stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Stick Together is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and brought to you on your community radio station. You've been busy. I was hoping that moving There's forward... There's a freeze on pay rises. I wasn't looking for much, just to keep up with inflation. Well, if you don't like it, there's the door. You're never alone when you're a union member. Join almost 2 million members today and you can enjoy higher wages and better working conditions. Visit joinyourunion.org.au today. That's an ad that Unions Australia have released on Twitter underlying the issue of suppressed wages at the expenses of profits. Put directly by the Finance Sector Union of Australia like this, workers are simply not getting their fair share. Bosses are always going to come up with new and increasingly creative reasons why they can't offer staff reasonable pay increases. The real reason is it helps them earn massive bonuses. That's the beginning and the end of it, and everything else is public relations. Despite cost of living increases of over 5%, workers are being offered from 1% to around 3% increases, with the employer mantra maintaining that further increases are predicated on productivity increases. The problem with this mantra is that the figures don't stack up. The Centre for Future Works, Greg Jericho, has analysed the latest data and says it shows the profit share going to business owners has never been higher. Jericho says the shift of national income from wages to profits has been in place for over 40 years now. It is a product of decades of industrial relations policies designed to limit the ability of workers to bargain for better wages. It is not an accident of economic conditions, but a feature of the system, he says. He goes on to say, Over the past three years, productivity has averaged 1.5% annual growth, while inflation in that period has also risen by an average of 2.1%. That means that nominal wages should have grown 3.6% in that time. Instead, they have averaged a mere 2% growth, less than inflation, let alone inflation and productivity. The difference is going into the pockets of employers. As these realities sink in, workers in unionised workplaces are beginning to demand a fairer return for their labour. 
Over the past weeks, workers at Timberlink Tarpina, a South Australian site, rejected the company's final and best offer of 4%, received MEU manufacturing division members unanimously voting to participate in a ballot to take industrial action. The blue-collar site is following along behind an increasingly militant workplace in the education sectors. In a historic move, the Independent Education Union, the IEU, New South Wales ACTU branch, that represents teachers in the Catholic school system, took strike action with 18,000 teachers and support staff across 540 Catholic diocesan schools stopping work on May the 27th with 10 rallies held across New South Wales and ACT. The IEU have communicated to members that to date their employers have not addressed the key elements of their claim. Pay teachers what they're worth, give support staff a fair deal, let teachers teach, cut paperwork, allow time to plan, reduce the teaching load by two hours per week, end staffing shortages. The enforced wage cuts and overwork are also at the root of issues experienced by New South Wales public sector workers. On the 6th of June, the New South Wales Government announced a revised wages policy of a 3% pay increase for public sector workers in 2022 to 2023 and increases of up to 3.5% subject to productivity in the year 2023 to 2024. However, the New South Wales Government's revised wages policies has been rejected by public sector unions and it fails to stop the decline in real wages for public sector workers. The unions and the workers are not backing off. From the coalface during May, National Tertiary Education Union members at Sydney University took strike action in a long battle that has seen their workplace scarred by job cuts, insecure work, low pay and exploitative work practices. Nick Reamer, President of the National Tertiary Education Union's University of Sydney branch, spoke with Pia Kanjan from the 3CR Thursday breakfast team about strike action taken by academic workers at Sydney University from May 11 to 12 and again on May the 24th to demand fair remuneration and job security. When you think about universities, you think generally about sort of white-collar workers who are on good salaries. But that image is very far from, from today's reality. Across the sector nationally, only about one in three jobs is ongoing. So there's just a massive proportion of casualisation and a fixed-term contract. So job insecurity is a very prominent part of the employment picture in universities across the country. And that was already the case before the pandemic. The pandemic um, led to even fewer jobs across the sector. There were about 40,000 jobs that were lost in public tertiary education in the year up to last May. And we know that a lot of those jobs job losses were sort of uh, the excuse or the pandemic served as an excuse for restructures that managements at universities had Mm. been wanting to undertake for a long time. So, you know, those people who do have jobs, if you're lucky enough to be in the minority with an ongoing job, whether you're an academic staff member or an administrative or support staff member, you generally have a crushing workload 
And if you're a casualised staff member, you not only have a, casu- uh, a crushing workload, but you're also subject to very serious wage theft. Mm-hmm. And one of the real defining features, I think, of universities at the moment, Priya, um, and it's just so positive to see, is the extent to which casualised university workers are uh, through through the NTEU and and independently of it as well, has begun to fight back um, and de- demand justice at work and an end to ju- the just intolerable levels of wage theft that, that they've been subject to for such a long time. Can you tell us about what led to academic staff at the University of Sydney deciding to strike and what some of your key goals are? Because from what you've said before, uh, these pressures have obviously been building for some time, but what was the breaking point? Sure. I mean, maybe the first thing to say is that the strike at Sydney Uni that we had on Tuesday of this week and then the week, uh, and then on May 11, 12, was not just by academic workers. So the NTEU is an industry union. So it's a union for everybody who works at the university, whether they are academics or whether they're library workers, support staff in labs, administrative workers. So, so we, we had a total university shutdown. Um, because of that, because of that fact, because our union, you know, embraces everybody who works at the university regardless of what they do. Um, and we've been working, we've been negotiating with management since August last year. We have had, you know, so many hours of negotiations with them, um, across the table. Um, and we, we haven't achieved or they've refused to budge on our members' key priorities. And they're about things precisely like reducing overwork. Um, bringing serious improvements to job security, ending long-term exploitative casualisation at, at the university, putting an end to the sort of punitive and obstructive restructure and change management practices that, that our administration, like lots of administrations at universities, continually want to implement. You know, mm. one restructure after another, poorly justified, makes everybody's life at work harder, doesn't achieve any uh, good results other than giving management the opportunity to say that they have, uh, you know, undertaken organisational change in different areas of the university. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, there are two other issues that were really important to us. One was to preserve the, the connection between teaching and research for academics. Um, so a defining feature of a university, I think, is that the people who teach students are also active researchers in their fields. Um, our management want to undermine that by removing academic staff's right to a 40% research component in their workload. Mm-hmm. And they want to force academics to negotiate how much research they're allowed to do annually with their supervisor. So management are basically just shredding the uh, regulated, protected workloads that academics have um, and have had for years. And they're just saying, look, you work it out with your supervisor. And it doesn't matter. And, you know, you work it out with your supervisor without any protections or controls against all of the power imbalances that um, exist between... So imagine if you're, a, you know, a younger female... Uh, person of colour, perhaps, um, and you're an academic, and you're having to negotiate your workload with an with an older male senior white head of school. I mean, the, the power imbalances mm. in a situation like that are just clear. Um, our management seem to have no interest in um, in acknowledging that. So that's one thing that we want to do mm. to protect academic freedom for a start, so that you know university management doesn't get to decide what research happens when and by who. And the other thing that was really important 
is introducing enforceable targets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander employment um, because Sydney Uni hasn't... Uh, the, the proportion of First Nations staff at the Uni hasn't grown for 10 years. When management came to us with their proposals for our next collective agreement, there wasn't a single word in it about First Nations staff. You couldn't find the word Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander in the document. Um, and that's simply not good enough, Priya. Mm-hmm. You know, a university like Sydney University, which is such a, you know, it's a, it's an institution that is deeply complicit with the, with the colonisation, I mean, of, of this country and the, and the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the solidification of, of discrimination and dispossession against yeah. Aboriginal people. We have an obligation and our management has to recognise that. Um, I'm wondering how, uh, if at all, has the University of Sydney responded to some of your actions? <laughs> yeah, well, first they tried to ignore us. You know, we were told at the enterprise bargaining table that strike action was simply irrelevant. You know, you might have thought that when thousands of university staff and also students take the quite bold step of going on strike for two full days at the start of a campaign and then following that up, very shortly afterwards with another 24-hour strike. You might have thought that that would send management a signal that all was not well at the university and that they really needed to start listening and negotiating in good faith. But no, but no, they told us that striking was just going to be irrelevant and that the only thing, so they think, that is going to make any difference is the, the negotiations at the bargaining table. They've also tried to stigmatise union members in a most disgraceful way. And, of course, they have taken everything online. So for those of our colleagues who don't support the union and were ready to strike break, disgracefully, in my view, in the last couple of, of weeks when we've had industrial action, there's been teaching that's gone online and administrative work and meetings that have gone online. Now, I'd like to think that there hasn't been nearly as much work online as the university administration would like because the support for the NTEU's claims on campus is actually pretty high. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but nevertheless, the new digital environment we're in does give management a way of, uh, you know, strike-breaking digitally. We did, though, have digital pickets. You know, we put mm-hmm. on digital events, digital strike events, to provide a, um, uh, an alternative to, to online work. Yeah. They were a success. And we also shut the campus down. Mm. I mean, you know, the Vice-Chancellor might like to think what's the use of his, of his big, shiny campus if there, are no, if there are no students or staff on it uh, on strike days. And that was absolutely the, the case. The place was absolutely deserted. Yeah, I mean, uh, for anybody who's not familiar with the University of Sydney campus, like the University of Melbourne, it has its own postcode. It's a gigantic campus. Um, so this, uh, I don't really know how to, to go into this without kind of laughing with, uh, you know, just feeling... Um, completely outraged um, but this past Monday the 23rd the Sydney Morning Herald reported the university reported an eye-watering one billion dollar of growth in revenue in 2021 and this is the same period during which employees were facing immense downward pressure and significant job cuts so just before we wrap up can you reflect on some of the implications of this massive surplus yeah I mean the surplus was absolutely staggering 1.05 billion dollars and the uh, you know the news of it was announced the 
afternoon before we were going on strike. So I can only imagine the sinking feeling that our management must have experienced when they realised that the, the coincidence of, of those two those two events. I mean, our members and I think students as well are just extraordinarily angry about this career. I mean, what it showed... We knew that the university is rich. Um, that's been obvious for a long time. We didn't understand exactly just how stupendously rich it is. And that $1.05 billion has come at the expense of staff, it's come at the expense of students. It shows that this management, you know, Mark Scott, the current Vice-Chancellor, and his, and his predecessors have put education and research as a distant second to ensuring a bottom line that is worthy of the corporate sector. It's simply a disgrace. Mm. That's all money that should have been devoted to the vital research and teaching that the institution does. There's no reason whatsoever for a, a, a public ed education institution like Sydney Uni to have such a staggering surplus. It's a disgraceful waste of waste of funds and lost opportunities. And our staff, are, we, we're livid about it. Stick together. 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 You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. You are listening to Stick Together, Union News, Workers' Stories and Social Justice Issues. If we consider the fights for real wages and secure work of today, it is often hard to think back to the battles of the past without giving them the gloss of nostalgia. But this week, the launch of a book co-authored by Meredith Bergman and Nadia Wheatley called Radicals Remembering the 60s cleverly sidesteps the problem by focusing on 20 individuals and asking them to name what was their aha moment, the thing that made them step over the line and make a fight for something other than their own safety. One of the people profiled is Peter Batchelor. This is what he said. And the next speaker will be, uh, well, Peter Batchelor then. Thanks, and uh, I join with um, Meredith in acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which this uh, building is uh, still standing and may it stand for a lot longer. Um, in fact, I worked here just around the corner on this, uh, this first floor a long time ago and uh, this room was nothing like it then and uh, it's terrific to see how the whole of the building has been uh, lovingly and faithfully restored. So Meredith and um, Nadia asked us to say what took us out onto the streets and they wanted to know whether it was a particular issue or whether it was the zeitgeist at the time. And, uh, and for me, I think it was a bit of a combination of, uh, of both. But the, the aha moment for me was when I was a, uh, a, a factory worker... I left, I was at, uh, at Monash University during those halcyon days and had a vacation job at a mattress factory that was located both in South Melbourne and then moved to Clayton, not far from the university. And I had worked there in, in what was the, worst, the second worst job in the factory. It paid $2 a week extra and, uh, for someone who had to earn their... Um, year's income during the summer vacation, that extra uh, two quid a week was, uh, was good. Because you've got to remember that, that time was a period of industrial militancy and period of great 
gains in uh, award wages and award conditions led by the militant unions here in, uh, in Victoria and some of those from this, um, this building here. And the factory I was working at had moved from an old industrial location in South Melbourne to a brand new, spanking new um, building designed by some specialist, employment specialist. And the set out and the layout of the new factory together with the f wider ferment in the industrial arena led to a very unhappy set of circumstances at this particular factory. And uh, the trigger to a lot of the problems there, that the very clever industrial designers had built an elevated box in the middle of the factory with glass windows all around it from which the uh, foreman uh, could then monitor everybody at their workplaces. And this was uh, viewed as really repugnant and seen as a sort of a watchtower, a prison-like environment. And there were lots of, as I said, ferment taking place. And at one stage, they sacked the shop steward. Uh, and when the management came to explain this to the workplace, to make sure they settled down, that it was he was a bad person, and we all had to uh, get on and live happily and work happily together, um, I said, I sp stood up at the, uh, in the canteen where we were all assembled and said this was a pretty despicable act and we wouldn't um, put up with it. So I was promptly sacked <laughs> and, uh, and sent out. And that was not the moment. It was the moment when the trade union came in and got my job back. And that's what was radicalised uh, me in that sense. You know, I've never forgotten that. And it then led me to always um, value the role of trade unions in, in our society. I was um, a member then of the small furnishing trade union. You've probably never heard of it then or since, but it was a, um, it was a small workplace, but it was caught up in, as I said, that movement that saw an extra week's annual leave. They went from three to four weeks. You got extra pay when you went on holidays so you could enjoy it. At, uh, benefits that were regarded as outrageous by the employer class, things like, so you got full pay when you went off on workers' compensation, and the list was fairly extensive and went on for quite some time because of the solidarity of the, uh, of the unions and the workers right across all forces of, uh, of industry. So, so that taught me the lessons of working together, of sticking together, of being part of a formal organisation, a trade union, and from there I was lucky enough to be asked to go and work for the trade, for that trade union, the furnishing trade union, and I did that for, um, for about seven or eight years before going on to work for the Labor Party in a political organising sense and from there into Parliament. But it was this early formative stages of my experience at the workplace that I found most uh, rewarding and most stimulating. And I think to fully understand that personal journey of mine, you had to sort of understand and appreciate the, what was happening in the political arena preceding that, preceding the, the 60s. And it was a time when year after year, 
the Liberals were re-elected. Menzies reigned supreme. And um, it's hard to believe the sort of person and values that he brought to the political arena. And a, a couple of good examples of that, and you might find this a bit hard to accept, particularly the young people, and there's a bit of a, a warning of how disgusting this is. So, you, But he um, was pathologically in love with Queen Elizabeth and wrote love poetry to her and published it in the uh, public domain. You think, it, you think he should do it in privacy of his own home, but uh, brought it out into the public domain. He also, if you recall, that he insisted or tried to have the currency named the royal instead of the dollar. And this was great debate, and, and luckily that didn't prevail. You could imagine, but since then, that sort of fog that fell over us in our community in the 60s was really broken through by the actions of a lot of people in the, uh, in the following, that it, following an important uh, decade. There were, and, they, and this happened all through music and plays and universities and schools, um, and at workplaces, and there was a large, widespread ferment uh, really looking for a fairer society and more just and more allowance for creativity and difference. And I think whilst those sorts of struggles are still being pursued today, it was at that period of time quite a, a genuine uh, breakthrough. And in when I was reading... Um, the book, a couple of things came through. One was about this uh, conservative uh, hegemony, and I recall in the book how um, Nadia was, uh, and her or her mum was worried that if she kept getting arrested, she didn't want to get arrested for language problems. And <laughs> was you sorry? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> anything else but language. <laughs> and and I recall that when I was at the um, uh, the Springbok demonstration here, that's exactly what I was arrested for because we were calling uh, the police a fascist pig. And I just don't know which word they regarded as being uh, <laughs> offensive, but nevertheless, that was what I was uh, guilty of. Um, I also uh, recall um, how those uh, campaigns and pursuits persisted and the years went by, and I was reading in the book, um, uh, in fact, talking to John about this earlier on, when he must have had some maudlin moment and was lamenting how things weren't as good, and he records in his book how his son Oliver came back to him a bit later on and said, and I'll quote from it from the book, he says, but Dad, they didn't bring back conscription, we haven't had another Vietnam, and they haven't hang hanged anyone else, and I think that's a good uh, Gore record. Thank you. That's it from Stick Together this week. You can catch up with the show at 3cr.org.au or where you get your favourite podcasts. Contact us at sticktogether at 3cr.org.au. I'm Annie McLaughlin. Join the Stick Together team next week for more workers' news and remember wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. Stay safe and stick together. We'll go out with another of the voices from the Remembering the 60s book, Margaret Roadnight. 
Enjoy listening to this podcast? 3CR is a community radio station, and you, the listener, are part of that community. Right now, it's our radiothon, and we need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donation really matters. Help keep community strong for another year.